Again, my, my beloved, lift up your ears, lift up your ears, <laughs> you can picture that, uh, to hear God's word. We're, we're going back to very familiar words, uh, maybe by now you even have it memorized, it's been read so often, but uh, nevertheless, powerful words indeed, because they come to us from God himself. Jude, verse 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, I am sure that you're very familiar with that Christmas promise of Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Uh, what a, a tremendous promise is found in those words that Messiah would come, born of a virgin. He's very man of very man, but he's very God of very God. He, in fact, is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Now, that familiar prophecy, of course, comes with a particular context that perhaps you're not all that familiar with. So let me go ahead and build up the, 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 the context, the background for you, because I think it's rather important and applicable. So back in the year 734, it's a very easy uh, a year to remember, just think of 7 equals 3 plus 4. 734 B.C., very important date in Old Testament history. Because in that year, Syria and Israel formed an alliance. And they had threatened to come against Judah, the, the southern kingdom. The, the king of Judah, his name was Ahaz, King Ahaz. And he, of course, seeing this alliance of the northern kingdom of Israel and of Assyria, he was filled with fear and trepidation. And so he sought to, to, to safeguard his own position by making an alliance with the very powerful and warlike nation of Assyria. Now, the prophet Isaiah came to Ahaz and warned him about this, warned him against this alliance. And, and, and in chapter 7 of Isaiah's prophecy there, uh, he comes with this uh, warning with actually a Hebrew pun uh, that I'm not going to read it in Hebrew, but I'll give you the, the, uh, the literal translation. If you will not make yourself firm, you surely will not be confirmed. Or as the English Standard Version has it, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Unfortunately, King Ahaz didn't pay attention to that warning. He didn't believe the promise of God. And he entered into that alliance. Now, the Assyrians did defeat Judah's enemies. They defeated Israel and Syria, but they also did something else. They made Judah a vassal state, so that now King Ahaz was required to pay tribute to Assyria. But even worse than that, 
the Assyrians put their idols in Jerusalem along the very temple of Yahweh. God's holy city was desecrated by Assyrian idols. Now, I'm bringing up that history because, uh, because I think it does relate to what Jude is, is thinking of here. Uh, Jude, is, in a certain case, is, is standing in the place of Isaiah, and here he's warning the church not to be like King Ahaz. In the middle of our spiritual battle where false teachers are spewing forth error and heresy in the place of truth, it's tempting to compromise, and it's tempting to accommodate the world by adapting their their thoughts and their practices and their attitudes in order to protect ourselves. And Jude here is saying, don't compromise. Don't don't compromise. Don't accommodate the world. Stand firm in the faith because Jesus Christ is coming again. Again, it's, it's easy to give up so much when on every side you are made to feel like a weirdo, like some insignificant weakling. But my friends, listen, the, the lesson from history, the lesson of the scriptures is that if you let go of your faith in Christ, there always will be spiritual ramifications. Every compromise of the truth leads to idolatry and to death. But even as God promised Ahaz that Messiah would come, so the promise is held out yet again to us. Jude says Christ is coming again. And when Christ comes, he's coming to bring with him righteous judgment. A judgment that will destroy his and your enemies. This judgment will vindicate his saints. Jude here calls it the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. His mercy, you see, will be demonstrated to you. And you will see how he has claimed you as his own. And that he will hold you on that great and terrible day. Now, the second return of Christ is our great hope. But there are two aspects to this. First, of course, Jesus Christ is coming to redeem his saints. He's coming to claim his own saints and to gather his saints and, and to uh, glorify them, to vindicate them. He's coming to redeem them from their present pain and sorrows and trials and the persecutions of this world. In Revelation chapter 21, uh, the apostle John had a vision and he wrote, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people. And God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain for the first things that passed away. 
John is looking and, and, and he has this vision of Christ's return. And he says it's like this bride coming down. And in it, he, the Messiah, he, the Lord of glory, he will wipe away your tears. He'll take away your pain. He will fill your mourning with joy. That's one aspect to Jesus' return. He's coming to redeem us. He's coming to fill your life with joy. He's coming to save you. He's coming to vindicate you. He's coming to take away the sorrows and the persecutions and the hardships of this life and to bring you into his glory with him. That's one aspect, but there's another aspect. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 tells us that, that uh, he's coming, Jesus is coming to repay with affliction those who afflict you. To give relief to you who are afflicted. So again, we are seeing that he's coming to, to give relief to you who are afflicted, but he's going to afflict those who afflict you. No one can touch the church without touching him. If any demon, any man, anything seeks to harm the church or to seek to harm any of his precious saints, the saints that, that Jesus died for, the saints that his, flesh, his precious blood was spilled for, if anyone seeks to touch his saints... They may get away with it by the justice of man. But our hope is Jesus sees it. He notes it. And he will repay every hurt and every affliction that they put on you. And he will do so with fiery vengeance. And so Jude again is encouraging us in the light of suffering, that suffering that we endure at the hands of false teachers who make life miserable for us. And he's telling us, look with patience because Jesus Christ has noted all your suffering. He's put all your tears in his bottle and beloved, he's coming again to judge the world and he's going to afflict those who afflicted you. Now, again, this is something that we're going to have to take by faith. Because it's often the case that when we feel hurt and when we're going through afflictions, we feel destitute, don't we? We feel, where is God? Sometimes we go through persecutions. Sometimes we go through tribulations. And we're led to, to be tempted to wonder, where is God in all this? Is God indifferent to my sorrows? Maybe God really doesn't love us after all. Now, we might fight back against that temptation. Well, of course God loves us. Uh, you know, he, he proved it by sending Jesus to die on the cross for us. But then we think, well, maybe he loves us for eternity, but he doesn't care for us now. He has abandoned us to suffering. Because after all, if God truly loved me, if God truly cared for me, why would he allow this pain to come into my life? Why would he allow my heart to be so broken? Why would he allow all these disappointments to haunt me? Why would my tears drown my pillow if he loved me? 
Why would he allow false brothers, as Jude been saying, why would he allow false brothers to divide the church and lead people astray? Why didn't God stop it all? No, those questions are natural, aren't they? But this again is why Jude says that we are to anxiously await the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and to keep ourselves in the love of God. We, we think that persecution, we think that persecution is a sign that God doesn't love us or that he's indifferent towards us. But actually, it's the exact opposite. Uh, in, in John chapter 15, verse 20, Jesus said, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live God in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It, it is not a question of will I say. No, you will suffer persecution. And that's why Paul also wrote to the Philippians in chapter 1, verse 29. For to you it has been granted, this, this, this verse here has been a mainstay for me for a few years now. It's been granted to you to suffer for Christ's sake. Not only to believe in him, but to suffer for him. It, it is a gift from God that you suffer. Your suffering for Christ is God's favor to you. It's not that he's disappointed with you. It's not that he's indifferent. No, he has favor towards you. Uh, your suffering, your persecution is actually a sign that he loves you and because through your suffering, you get to enter into Jesus' suffering. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? Many, many work so hard at trying to escape persecution and affliction. And to do so, they compromise. They pander to the enemies of the faith. But Jude encourages us, beloved, don't pander. Don't compromise. Stand firm because Jesus Christ is coming again. I know it's been 2,000 years, but he's coming again. And when he comes, he's going to deal with these foes. Now, considering this, this privilege of suffering and persecution, uh, the great John Calvin, again, he always has something really good to say, I think, but, but from his commentary on 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, he said, the injuries and persecutions which innocent and pious persons endure from the wicked and, and abandoned show clearly, as in a mirror, that God will one day judge the world. Your persecutions are a sign that God's coming to judge the world. We see this in, 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 in redemptive history. Remember the Israelites are in Egypt. They're enslaved. Their backs are being opened as, as, uh, you know, as they're you know, enslaved, as they're serving the Egyptian ungodly masters. And in their slavery, they cry out to God for mercy. They cry out. And what does God do? God hears them crying out. God hears their moans and their groans. He sees their tears. He sees the blood on their backs. And what does he do? Does he ignore their groans? Does he laugh at them? Does he mock them? Does he make fun of them? Ha, ha, ha. They deserve what they get. Now we're told God heard their cries and he rescued them. He rose up to rescue them. He sent Moses to them. And then he destroyed Egypt. 
And so too, Jude is here saying that our groans are an indication that God is getting ready to send a greater than Moses to destroy the world for afflicting us. See, we need to understand something, that God is using our trials. He's, he's using your suffering. He's using persecution and, and all these difficulties. He's using them to prepare you for glory. God isn't indifferent. He's just patient. And God has a greater goal in mind than simply showing his power to judge. He's showing his wisdom. He's showing his power. He's showing his, his ability to keep you even in pain and hurt and difficult. That's why Peter in his first epistle, chapter 4, comforts the saints. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. <laughs> But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Okay, now, of course, there's, there's various reasons why God allows suffering and pain in our lives. Remember, Jude is, is writing these verses as encouragements towards sanctification, so that we would grow in grace and the likeness of Christ. And, and so we need to remember that, that every suffering, suffering of every kind, whether they be trials or disappointments or hardships or persecutions or health problems or financial difficulties or whatever the affliction, all of these are each designed to stir up our hope in Christ's return. They make us long for heaven. They make us hate the world more. They teach us what, what we ought to truly value When you look at trials and difficulties, and if you're persecuted, look at these things as merely uh, attitude adjustments, <laughs> right? God is adjusting our attitude. Trials and suffering improve our character. They reveal the dross in our lives, and through the heat of, of afflictions, we are being purified. And as we go through them, we see then the blessings of Christ that were being called into his family and kingdom. This is a, such a, a wonderful doctrine. Could you imagine going through life without Christ? Some of us have, have suffered greatly. Some of us have gone through financial difficulties. Some of us have gone through health issues. Some of us have faced death itself, death of a loved one. Perhaps uh, we got word that our own life is endangered by some cancer or something. Many people in the world go through the same things. They hear the same news. They go through difficulties too. But they go through it without Christ. Could you imagine going through these things without hope? Could you imagine going through your trials and your difficulties without realizing that these things are being used for your good, that you're being sanctified, that you're being transformed to the image of Christ, moving from glory to glory? Could you imagine living life without the comfort of knowing that Christ is coming to put an end to all the tears of this world? 
Indeed, Peter goes on to say in his second epistle, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. We don't know what day it's going to come. It could come today. It could come tomorrow. Next year, a decade from now, a hundred years from now. We don't know the day of the Lord. It will come like a thief. In which, But then when he does come, the heavens will pass away with a roar. The elements will be destroyed with intense heat. The earth and its works will be burned up. But according to his promise, we are looking for what? We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, Christ is coming to put an end to our sorrows, to wipe away every tear, to put to death, death itself, put death in the grave and close up that tomb forever. That is what Jude here calls the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And and Peter applies that saying, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what people ought we to be? Holy conduct and godliness. You see, Jude's exhortation to us becomes even more important, beloved, I think, as, as we're getting into a very dangerous world, aren't we? I, I know I may be wrong here, but I've looked at the world in the last few years and I've seen it become dark to darker. It's evolving more and more into a complete godless wasteland where insanity is regarded as sanity. And as Marxism is, is beginning to make its mark and its, and its place in, in our government and in, in philosophical thinking and our political thinking, I, I, I believe that strong persecution is coming to us in this country. We've escaped it for years, for centuries. Other Christians around the world have endured intense persecution. Christians in Asia and Middle East and Africa suffering and dying because of their faith in Christ. And and we haven't had to suffer like that. We've not been put in prison, but it's coming, I think. And as the government becomes more hostile towards Christianity, I wonder how many will fall away. Remember Jesus' parable of the sower? And in that teaching, he says that there's many who profess him as Lord in times of ease. But then under trials, they don't persevere. And it's true that in peaceful times, people come to church for a number of reasons. Maybe to make friends, maybe to find a bride or a husband, maybe to escape loneliness, maybe because your parents made you come. Maybe it's to make business contracts. But when persecution comes, these reasons will not be enough to keep you in the church. And if you're not rooted and grounded in hope and faith in Christ, you will wilt under the blast of persecution and suffering. Those who know Jesus Christ, that he alone has the words of eternal life, The good news for them is that it doesn't matter. No threat, no loss, no disappointment, no hardship, no sword will keep them from from coming to him. And, And Jude here is calling out to you who have found that your life is in Christ. He says, pray in the spirit, keep yourself in the love of God. And as you suffer, anxiously await the mercy of Christ. 
for he's coming to deliver you from all this. That's why Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, there must be needs among you, factions, so that those who are proved may be evident among you. You understand what he's saying? You can become discouraged when you see disunity, when you see people leave the church in unprincipled ways, or, or when uh, unprincipled men come and disrupt the church by factions. But Paul here is saying that this is merely Christ's way of, of pruning the church. It's his way of revealing those who are fickle, those who are not necessarily grounded in God's word, those who are wicked and who fall through pride and arrogance. But even as we wait for the coming of the Lord, we can be assured that he will watch over his flock as a good shepherd. He will protect it. Now, his protection doesn't necessarily mean removing us from trials and persecutions. Again, many Christians have been cast into prison. They've been tortured, even put to death. But they were given, each and every one of them, a strength to endure. And the crown of life was eventually placed upon their brow. His protection will not necessarily rid us of disappointments. But the promise is, beloved, that he will not let you go. He will hold you in his arms. And his omnipotent hands will cause all things to work together for your good. Isn't that wonderful news? That hope encourages us when we remember, again, Jesus is watching and waiting. But again, as he's going to redeem us, just retribution fall upon the wicked. Habakkuk. Chapter 1, verse 13, the prophet there confessed, Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. You cannot look upon wickedness with favor. No, no, God is righteous. He hates all sin, and he must come to this world to end it by judging all people, great and small, rich or poor, slave and free. No one will escape his judgment. Jesus Christ is coming as the great and omniscient judge. And he will look even into the hearts of men, into the very depths of men's minds. And he will look at all their actions as well as their motivations. And he will see whether or not they were obedient and pure. He will condemn all the unrighteous. And God will not overlook one sin. God does not act arbitrarily. He acts according to his nature and his nature is just and perfect. Now, my friends, hearing that, that should cause us to some degree to, to be afraid. It should fear you or cause you to fear. God does not wink at sin. God does not permit even the smallest imperfection to dwell in his holy presence. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, John says, This is the message that we have heard from him, and we announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. John said that this is the very message of Jesus Christ himself. God hates sin. And there is absolutely nothing in God that will even look upon sin. He will punish it under his righteous wrath. No one will escape it. Every sin, every error, every foible, every imperfection, every falling short, every false word, every false look, every false motivation. 
All will be weighed. All will be under the scrutiny of his all-seeing eye and all things that people try to forget about. Those things that people push down and hide deep in their subconscious, it will all come up and come out. Judgment. And don't think just because you're in the church that you might escape that in a certain sense. Jesus said on that great day, many will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do that in your name? And he will cast them into hell. There are those who hide behind their piety and their Christian service as though Jesus is somehow impressed with it all. (laughs) He'll cast them off his shaft. False teachers came into the church. Their dreams and their speculations and their teachings trying uh, to turn the grace of God into licentiousness. They'll be destroyed. Jude has already been showing us that in his epistle. And he's comforting you, the true believer in Christ, with that promise. But here's the question now. If God is so exacting and so righteous and so holy that nothing impure can stand in his presence, that no false word will go undetected, how do you hope to stand? How do you hope to stand on that great day when he can look into your heart and you can't hide from him? Dear Christian, you can thank God that Jesus Christ bore last day judgment when he hung on the cross. Romans chapter 6, verse 3 and verse 6 gladly announces all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. You understand what he's saying? The the world is is looking forward in a certain sense to, to that great day of judgment. But you and I who are in Christ, you and I who trust in him, and you and I who who believe in his saving power, we look back. We look back and we rest that we've already gone through judgment day. We will not go through it again. Jesus Christ died the penalty. He entered into last day judgment. You who trust in him, you who believe in him, you who who cling to him for dear life, you who love him, you who fear him, you are united to him and you've been declared justified. His perfect righteousness is now yours. He bore on the cross your sin and he drank in every bitter dreg of God's God's wrath. There's no room here to think that, well, yeah, it's 99% his righteousness, 1% mine. Nope. (laughs) It's, It's all his righteousness or it's nothing. That's why Hebrews sternly warns us in chapter 12, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. Well, I'm going to close because my time is up. Westminster Confession of Faith 
or no, it's the larger catechism number 90, asks the question, what shall be done to the righteous on the day of judgment? That's the question that we're looking for, right? What, what's, what shall be done to the righteous? And part of the answer says that at the judgment, the righteous shall be set on his right hand and there openly acquitted and acknowledged and shall join with him in judging the reprobate angels and men. That phrase, openly acknowledged and acquitted, is purely a judicial statement. It refers to the judicial standing that each saint will have as they are vindicated before God and man in the last day. On that last day, there'll be no question who are his. He'll make it known. And he'll make it known to all creation because he'll place a crown of life on your head. And he'll invite you to come in and sit at my right hand. Join me in judging the reprobate men and angels. What a privilege. But that privilege comes only by trusting in him, by, by believing in him. Not playing the game, not pretending you're religious, not saying the right words, but truly in your heart believing he is Lord. He is coming for us as a mercy because again, on that day, he'll receive us unto himself. and He'll reward us. And on that day, he'll wipe away all our tears and he will cheer us with his own sweet smile. This is what he came to do. This is what he died for. This is his great joy. And that's our great hope. And friends, Rita sang a song a little while ago that says, basically, that we're never going to be more holy or, more, or, or we're never going to be more righteous than we are right now. We might be more happy in heaven, but right now, we are as justified and we are as righteous as we ever will be because we're united to Christ, the truly righteous one. Your judicial standing in heaven will only be because of your union with Christ, but that is still your justification. And you will stand with him in glory. That's your hope. That's what Jude here is saying. Don't forget this. It's easy to say, oh, Jesus Christ isn't coming back for a thousand years. You don't know that. He comes like a thief in the night. He might come back tonight. And if you are truly trusting him, that's a word of joy, isn't it? Let's pray. Lord God, we come now asking for your favor, Lord, to, to, to reveal to us in the depths of our hearts what all this really means. What a joy it is to say that, you, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is coming back. He's coming back to judge this world. He's coming back to put to, to death, death itself. He's coming back to raise the dead from the graves. He's coming back to set the world right. Lord, he's coming back to judge the unrighteous and the ungodly. He's coming back to vindicate us to openly acknowledge and acquit us before all creation. It's coming back to bring new world, a new earth, a new heaven to being. 
Lord, we thank you that by faith in Christ, we are the privilege to stand with him in glory. Lord, let that hope fill us with joy. Let that hope, O oh Lord, purify our hearts. Let that hope, O oh Lord, fill us with, with greater desires to live for you. For Lord, we are weak and we are strong, or we're, we're weak when we should be strong. We're ignorant, O oh Lord. We know so little. Oh, but great God, Jesus is our refuge. He's our life. He's our hope. We cling to him, and we gladly sing his praise. Amen. All right, well, let's... Uh,